You're listening to Garden Futurist. I'm Sarah Beck, here with Adriana Lopez Villalobos. Hi, Adriana. Hi, Sarah. Today, we are looking deeply into the past to help us see the future. We're going to be talking about some research that involves collecting genetic material, and that material can tell stories about the history of the plants and people and overall ecology of the West Coast. But this might also reveal a glimpse of the future in a way that may inform gardeners and others caring for the landscape. Dr. Rachel Meyer, our guest, works with eDNA. So, Adriana, I know that the E in eDNA is environmental, and it's a small E. (laughs) That's right. We know DNA is genetic material that is often extracted from an individual from a particular species to help us understand evolutionary processes. eDNA, though, is different in that the DNA is obtained from many organisms that are found in the environment without any obvious signs of the biological source material. I'm with you so far. (laughs) In other words, the eDNA might come from water, soil, or even air without actually sampling tissue or blood from the organism directly. Yes, that's right. And the mechanism is actually very simple, if you think about it. Living organisms, as they move through their environment, they shed genetic material in the form of DNA. This genetic material lingers in the environment, providing insights into the past and the present of those organisms that left it behind. I can't wait to hear what we can learn from this. Our guest today is Dr. Rachel Meyer, Rachel is co-founder of Shoots and Roots Bitters, and she is adjunct assistant professor in ecology and evolutionary biology and director of the Cal eDNA program currently at UC Santa Cruz. Climate change is leading to habitat shifts that threaten species throughout California, one of only three North American biodiversity hotspots. The UC Conservation Genomics Consortium, which you directed, launched the California Environmental DNA, Cal eDNA program, to be a citizen and community science initiative. It sounds amazing to me that as a citizen, I could be helping to collect eDNA or DNA samples. Can you explain what that means and how you're doing it? Sure. And I'm really excited to share information about this program because we really need more people to get engaged and participate at any level. So the UC Conservation Genomics Consortium was five different investigators from different UC campuses. So LA, Merced, Santa Cruz, Berkeley, and San Francisco. And they wanted to build molecular tools that would actually help managers. So help us manage species and habitats for conservation. And environmental DNA is an emerging field. Oh, it's not a field. It's a tool. But we have certain ways that we analyze the DNA to try to understand if we can track species, like for biomonitoring, or to be able to track entire communities and measure their change over space and over time. And we thought, this is a really cool, like, hot area. Let's figure out how we can develop biodiversity baselines for all of California as a start. And that way we can see how much value tracking DNA change has for management in California as we do grassroots studies across all of these different UC campuses. So it's really basic to collect DNA. We're actually just collecting an environmental sample. It can be just a scoop of soil or sediment or a liter of water. And the only requirement is that you wear gloves so that you're not contaminating it with whatever you ate for breakfast and whatever was in your pocket and, you know, whatever you, if you touched your face. So 
You say that baseline biodiversity data would provide opportunities for habitats to be managed under short-term and long-term environmental change. Can you explain in broad strokes what the environmental DNA tells us? I'll do my best. We're still really trying to discover what it tells us. And that's also why citizen science is so important in this, because people will make their own choices on where to collect a sample. And we might find that if you sample on a slope or in a puddle, or if you pretend to think like a bobcat and you think of where they might walk, maybe we'll find some different patterns. So we extract the DNA and we'll use a technique called metabarcoding. It's multi-locus metabarcoding. So we target six places where we get barcode level information. And so we stitch all this information together to make like the tree of life community profile for a sample. For a single sample that a person collects, we get about a thousand different taxa. But of course we haven't like sequenced all biodiversity yet. So these are the best matches that we have. They could change over time. In 10 years, we could reprocess the data. We don't have to do any new lab work. We just take the DNA and we just match it to everything that we know that we've sequenced and we'll see different results. So eDNA will tell us about how the environment is structured, how communities are organized over space and through time. Over more time, we'll be able to get more precise species level identifications. So right now I might be able to say, we have a rockfish, but I can't tell you which species of rockfish is in the kelp forest that you collected a sample in. What examples might you pull out if you were comparing something that is like not human influenced data compared to the human era of data? Yeah, probably wildfire is the biggest one. So in the Pleistocene, there's just like huge fires that happened and in the Holocene as well. And we can see that in the charcoal record of the sediments. So you have a really nice way to measure when there was fire and how intense that fire was in these sediment cores. And then you get the DNA out of the sediment cores and you can match that up. And we can then look at, well, okay, how does succession happen? How do communities reassemble after fire? And then maybe once an invasive plant is present, does that pattern change, that succession pattern? So we can ask questions using the deep past to help us understand the processes that we should anticipate now and into the future. And then relating that to humans, we have measures, like there's a human impact map for California that we predict how much we've affected habitats all over the state. And we don't see a huge association between like the eDNA communities and human impact. It matters, but it doesn't matter as much as like elevation or how much shade you have. So I'm wondering, like there must be a more nuanced way to look at human impact And maybe it's about the chemicals that we're dumping into systems, or maybe it's just about clearing land. Or like plastic. Microplastics, yeah. Or just changing the populations of birds and megafauna that are going to change those trophic interactions and relative abundances of different members of the communities. So I think these like deeper timescales help us characterize human impact a little bit better. So you also look at interactions with plants as well. Can you link that to the story you're telling about what that tells you if you're able to connect those other pieces? Oh, sure. So when you have eDNA data, you have like tens of thousands of, let's call them species, they're species hypotheses, (laughs) and you have hundreds or thousands of data points. 
across the state or across the world. And we can start to see, oh, every time I see this grass, I also see this microbe. And so we can say maybe they're ecologically co-occurring, maybe they're interacting in some way. So it's not the same as like observing an interaction like, oh, this ate that or this parasitizes that. But we can find these interactions. So if I take DNA from an oak tree leaf, I can find all the species of gall wasps that will be associated with that oak tree. And I can also see the nematodes and arthropods that are affected by the oaks being in that area. And so I can make some inferences about the relationships and the ecological role of the oak tree in that environment. And when you remove it, we can make hypotheses about what other species might increase or decrease because of that change. So this is like network analysis. And we always call it like, who is Kim Kardashian in our ecological network? (laughs) So we're really trying to discover like which plants really change the whole community network. And if you were to remove them, what happens to the network? Let's talk about the BioBlitz. I love a BioBlitz. And maybe you can define that also for our audience. But there was a particular BioBlitz at Fort Ord that you had some Cal eDNA collection and there were some invasive grasses that you were looking at. I'm, I'm really curious to hear more about that. So this is the Fort Ord Natural Reserve was a really great like starting point that inspired us to have all of these other collection campaigns, but we didn't quite get the answers yet. So it's in process, but a BioBlitz is really a simple term for let's go inventory biodiversity together in an abrupt moment in time. And often these are iNaturalist bioblitzes. So people will go out, they'll take photographs or recordings or eBird, and they'll put their observations online. And that way they get incorporated into the Global Biodiversity Information Facility. There's people sitting in basements and museums all over the world waiting for someone to take a picture of a spider so that they can inventory. <laughs> they can say, oh, this is the species that you got. <laughs> so bioblitzes often are also around herbarium collections. They're just coordinated events where we try to make some progress in biodiversity surveying and analysis. So we do eDNA surveys. Sometimes we call them eDNA bioblitzes. They're they're a lot of fun. We go out for a couple of hours. Sometimes we end up wine tasting at the end of the day. Those are always my favorite. (laughs) It's such an interesting concept because the idea of getting a portrait of a moment in time with many, many people cooperating at the same moment There's like a a celebratory component of that also, as you mentioned, the wine. Yeah. And because we know so little about eDNA, being able to control time and have lots of people collecting lots of samples, like within just a couple of hours is so useful. For example, in tide pools, I know we are mainly talking about horticulture here, but if we're talking about like coastal aquaculture... For tide pools, you really want to go out at like low tide so you can really get out there and you only have an hour or two. And if you want to collect 100 samples in an hour or two, no lab alone is ever going to be able to do that. You need the public engaged. You're listening to Garden Futurist. We'll be right back. Let's hear from board member, arboretum volunteer and master gardener, Anne Daniel on why she values Pacific Horticulture membership. I mean, I just love learning about plants. 
And by learning about plants, you learn about place. And so for someone that was a newcomer to an area, it was really important to understand the history and the climate through plants and through the people and their plants. I just wanted to make sure I was getting good, solid, reputable information that applied to where I was trying to garden and that I could understand and that spoke to me in ways that was really helpful rather than my having to translate everything to sort of the zone I'm in or the issues I face. Every time I visit the Pacific Horticulture website, I find information of value and benefit to me that I can use immediately and learn from. Join right now at pacifichorticulture.org. I'm interested also in fire disturbance, which you talked about briefly before, and just how this research may help think about resilience of some California native plant species after the fire disturbance. Like, are there things we can learn about post-fire? Yeah, we're just getting into the weeds (laughs) of our Woolsey fire data set. So we had, by total opportunity, the public had sampled lots of places in the Santa Monica Mountains. And graduate students at UCLA, uh, Rachel Turba was the leader of this, sampled lagoons in Southern California, the, the drainages of the Santa Monica Mountains. And they had sampled those before the wildfire. And then right after the wildfire, we went to those same locations and we collected samples again. And then six months later, again, and six months later, again. And so we could actually see how the whole community changed over time. And everyone was really concerned. They're saying, is the habitat going to return to what it was, or is it going to convert to something totally different? Are our native species or serotonous species going to do okay? Or was the fire too intense in this area? So we can actually correlate burn severity with the community profile and ask, did it really make a huge difference? And yes, it does look like severely burned areas look completely different from unburned areas in terms of the microbes. And we know that plants need a certain microbial community in the soil to thrive, but that low and moderate burn severity does not look different from the unburned areas. It doesn't look very different. So that was encouraging. And also the water systems reset the next year. So there's resilience in the system where we're not seeing a long-term effect of the erosion. So for general biodiversity, we're seeing some encouraging patterns. For plants though, we don't know what's in the seed bed and how it's responding. And I think it's gonna take a couple more years to really see that response. But what's been really cool is through that wildfire project, we've developed some really great relationships with people that do remote sensing analysis. And we're trying to connect the observations they can make from space with the eDNA patterns that we get on the ground. and The remote sensing community had said, because the trees are dying, because there's drought and high mortality, they could map the dead trees from space. And that's exactly where the wildfire occurred. So now we can ask questions about tree mortality and ask questions about refugia. And this is a huge issue. It's like for climate refugia, like little kind of arroyos or areas where we think, the plants shouldn't have burned. Are they reseeding the community? 
Or is the community returning from underground, from what's in the seed bank? And we don't know what has the bigger effect. Sorry, my dog's in the background. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wildfire is upsetting. It's worth barking about. <laughs> also important. Well, I guess that's my question. I mean, this is very interesting thinking about, you know, a lot of these ecosystems are ones that we've always been told, well, this is supposed to burn. Right. So I'm so curious how some of this, this research you're talking about, if that bears out what we imagine from this ecological perspective and say, oh, well, some of these areas are supposed to go through this process of burning. And you're saying some of this research will show us, or maybe, maybe someday we would know, right? if those seeds that are laying dormant are suddenly coming to life at the right moment. Yeah, yeah. Some things that come to mind are like the Brodias. These were important geophytes. They So they make these sweet underground storage, like little potatoes, but they're little corms. They're sweet. They were a major Native American food around Sacramento and in the Channel Islands and in Southern California and the mainland. And they do better when there is regular burning And so when Europeans suppressed the Native American practices of burning the landscape, those populations of Brodias have really suffered. And so I wonder if in eDNA, we'll start to see a relationship between wildfire where that occurs and the frequency that we detect Brodias. Another question that comes to mind is about hazelnuts in the Santa Cruz area. The Amamutsin tribal band, well, this was informed to me by Rick Flores from the Arboretum, had traditionally relied on hazelnuts as a food source over oak, over acorns. But then fire suppression reduced the hazelnuts in the coastal area. And also when the tribes were pushed into the uplands, they didn't have access to hazelnuts as much. So one of the questions is, did reliance on hazelnuts decline because people weren't able to access them or because of wildfire suppression. Wow. Oh, that's very interesting. So maybe we can do some experiments where we try to grow hazelnuts in burned and unburned soil or just see what happens when you add some wildfire to the mix. (laughs) I can see why there would be a preference for the hazelnut over an acorn, honestly. Yeah. I, I think hazelnuts don't require processing to be edible, so... Although I don't know, maybe you have a good recipe for acorns. I did take that class in Berkeley where you learn like eight different ways of processing acorns. Did you come up with a favorite? I like them in tortillas. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) All right. I love that. As garden futurists, we're always looking for the next innovations for growing climate resilient plants and contributing to resilience as gardeners and contributing to biodiversity. Are there ways that this research may somehow and someday inform our garden plant selections or even our gardening methods in the future? I certainly hope so. One of the interesting questions is on how, especially the immigrant communities in our state, the plants that people choose to grow in their gardens reflect moving biodiversity around, right? That's what humans are really good at. We take plants from all over the world and we set them up in our gardens for food and for beauty and for medicine and and for sustaining the pollinators and other components of our ecological systems. But it's kind of a big natural experiment. So you could think of people growing date palms in gardens all over the country, all over the state, 
well, what's the role of that date palm? How is it helping or hurting the environment? Who's visiting that date palm? Who's using that date palm? So maybe eDNA can actually find some general rules about the ecological role of species by leveraging what we learned from surveying gardens. And also thinking about like, well, where is the best place to plant? I just heard this about milkweed, that certain places it's good to plant milkweed and certain places it's not good to plant milkweed because you might be shifting the monarch butterfly pathway by changing the distribution of milkweed. So if we can actually map more complex biodiversity over space, maybe we can have more strategic gardening. Very interesting. Have you heard of any of this DNA research around pollinator relationships? Yes. There's a lot of people that are just swabbing flowers and getting a list of pollinators. And it's not just the pollinators that you get, but you actually get the microbiome that's in the flowers. And we can see how bees can support each other by depositing beneficial microbes like acidophilus in a flower so that they get some immune system support. We can also see how there's like microbial warfare happening among pollinators that are competing by exploiting these microbial associated species on flowers. So there's a whole world that's happening at this very small scale, and we can actually investigate that with eDNA. That is mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So fascinating. Thinking again just far into the future of your work, where do you think an exponentially increased amount of eDNA data collected from ecosystems could take us in our efforts to restore biodiversity on a really big scale? Oh, man. The million-dollar question. I think it's about the rules. We still don't know the rules of how complex communities, how they get built, how they're maintained, and how they fall apart. And I think eDNA is a rapid way to sort of advance ecological theory about how these processes occur and how interdependent we all are on other species. As a shoots and roots bitters person, I love the flavor of plants and I would love to see more eDNA samples informing how the community influences plant chemistry, flavor, and benefits some of the functional diversity of plants. I'm really excited to see these different fields come together. So many interesting possibilities. Rachel, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. personally found it really exciting to think about a sample from somewhere nearby revealing little bits of a story that we otherwise would never have seen. So there's so many potential applications for the research Rachel described, such as the information scientists can get from eDNA to help us learn about the effects of climate change, wildfires, or invasive species. Yeah, so we are learning about what was present at one point in time, but also about the associations between and among species. Those are the patterns that are going to help us understand if, for instance, the intensity of recent wildfires compared to prescribed burning practices affect plant community composition or recovery of those habitats where they occur. I think this methodology is fascinating and promising, and we can continue learning from it in the future as new genetic data are obtained and added to the gene bank. As gardeners who also want to see healthy communities of wild plants, I think we're curious 
about how eDNA shows promise for making future decisions, including what plants we might grow in our own gardens. And this idea of having tons of data from different points in time, if we want to create ecological gardens that mimic natural environments, does this offer some clues for what will be successful down the road? We're learning so much about the interactions with other organisms that perhaps we didn't know about and that are key in maintaining healthy ecosystems. And therefore, we as gardeners can learn about how to create those gardens and mimic those healthy environments. Like peeking into a window to the past, present, and future of plants. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. Did you know that talking about garden futurist and social situations reinforces your image as savvy and well-informed about unexpected topics. Don't forget to share it on your favorite social media platform. Find us at pacifichorticulture.org. Birakino is a not-too-big, not-too-small Santa Cruz-based winery. Birakino produces minimal intervention, maximal pleasure-inducing wines from a wide array of responsibly farmed vineyards including many planted between the late 19th century and the early disco era. We strive to produce wines which defy rather than exert gravity, which revitalize and revive, and which authentically express the character of the sites from which they derive. Go to birakino.com and enter the code PH at checkout to receive a special 10% discount.